This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's an EFL special. We know we don't have time to cover it enough and we forgive you if you occasionally cheat on us with other podcasts. So this is a very simple one-hour guide to help you and us catch up on who's good and who isn't and why none of the goals are the same size in Hull. In the Championship, something like one point separates top and bottom. What's going on? Only one team has won more games than they haven't. Can anyone confidently predict who'll make it to the promised land? TM. A bit more stretched in Leagues 1 and 2 with some big hitters near the top of the former. You've made some very simple requests, including please just say Gillingham out loud, so we've achieved one thing already, plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hello, Max. Uh, the Guardian's EFL correspondent, Ben Fisher. Hi, Max. And from the Not The Top 20 podcast, George Ellick. Hey, George. Hi, Max. Hello. Let's start with the championship. I mean, the top is fascinating. No one is walking away with it. One point separates the top five, six points between first and 15th. As I said in the intro, only one team, Blackburn, who are fifth, have won more games than they haven't. They have eight wins and seven defeats and just win a game and lose a game and win a game and lose a game. Um, and Paul says, I've wondered if there's something about this particular season. Has the championship finally reached the infinite monkeys typewriter stage? One point covering the first five teams. Preston North End with their ridiculous goal difference until a couple of weeks ago. Blackburn. Is this the season where a team somehow makes the playoffs and gets relegated? It, <laughs> it, is, it is ridiculous at the top there, George. Yeah, I mean, is there a top? Like, is, there, is there a middle? <laughs> a is there question. a bottom? Like. It's just it's just a, a big chunk of teams, isn't it, really, at the moment? Um, I think there's a few reasons for it. It does definitely feel like the quality of team that was relegated from the Premier League last season um, was much poorer. Uh, we've seen, I think, especially in the couple of seasons um, since you know the, the COVID pandemic, we've seen a, a certain calibre of player, a certain price bracket of player, maybe not quite as appealing to Premier League clubs as they used to be, which meant we saw a lot of players playing in the championship over the last couple of seasons who probably shouldn't have been. Um, there are a couple this season. You know, Ishmael Assar is probably the obvious one and Jao Pedro as well, but Watford aren't doing too well. Um, but there definitely doesn't feel like 
a team like a Leeds or like a, a Norwich times two who are just basically way too good for the division. Uh, Burnley sit top at the moment, um, which uh, you know some people seem surprised about. People seem to forget that they were about 15 points better than both Norwich and Watford last season. Um, but it, it's not a great renewal in terms of quality, but but in terms of excitement and you know the the unpredictability of the championship that even um, you know your most agricultural championship viewer will know about, uh, it's uh, it's a stellar uh, renewal. So does Ben? Does that make it the most exciting league in the world? Like, should we all just t- take our take our eyes away from the Premier League and start watching ITV 4s EFL highlights show? It, well, it is gloriously tight, isn't it? I'm just looking now. I mean, it's six points separate first from 15th, which is, you know, just bonkers. Um, you know, in sort of, if you compare that to the Premier League, you've got nothing nothing similar remotely. Um, I do think, though, sort of sadly, that Burnley, Watford and Norwich will probably be right up there at the end of the season again. And I, I do think that's sort of disappointing or a bit underwhelming in, in terms of the, what the Championship maybe will end up like come sort of April, May. But obviously for the time being, it's, it's good fun. Last season, when when Luton and Huddersfield got into the playoffs, they were great stories and probably maybe not the best teams uh, that, that the league's ever seen. But obviously, that's that's great, and I think we're going to end up with that again. I think there's going to be some kind of quite poor or interesting teams that squeak into maybe fifth or sixth in the in the playoffs, and that really, you know, I think is great, and and it it does open it up to get that you know, uh, a, a different story to, to sort of contradict what I just said about the usual suspects being up there. I think we will see somebody interesting. Maybe Mill might do it this year, who knows, um, to, to get into the playoffs. So, yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. And the the span of kind of interest is so much greater than the Premier League where you could sort of name your top six, seven, you know, in a, in, in a second. Could I tip Coventry City to go up through the playoffs and get relegated? Because... They currently sit bottom of the 24, but they've two games in hand and most of their games have been away from home because they weren't able to play at home earlier in the season. So I suspect they're probably in a false position, are they? I mean, they're, they're, uh, you've missed out the key point there, which is the reason they couldn't play at home is because um, they decided to play rugby sevens on their pitch during the Commonwealth Games, which is a, a beautifully EFL reason to suddenly <laughs> have to play all, all of your games away from home. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they do look to be in a false position. M- Mark Robbins has done uh, a very good job there. They, they, I mean, they did start the season very poorly, but two of their home games have been against sides in the top seven. Um, they do seem to be, you know, it, it's it's typical of the championship right now that the team in 24th, definitely aren't the worst team in the division um, and what Ben said as well I mean I think there's, there's an interesting thing about these sides who who do kind of progress last season it was Huddersfield and Luton now I'm not going to be as brave as Ben and, and start saying that Huddersfield and Luton weren't good sides and I think there's there's maybe an argument to suggest that Luton are probably the team who are being ignored the most at the moment you know they were playoff semi-finalists last season Nathan Jones their manager has a history of basically improving Luton every single season he's been at the club taking them from league two up to a playoff semi-final with a, a little hiatus in the middle where Luton started to, to have a downward trajectory again. And they got two points from their first four games of the season. And I almost think because of maybe taking Burnley out of it, I would argue that Luton have possibly been the best team in the championship since the end of uh, end of August. They've only lost one game since then, scoring loads of goals. Um, they've got a brilliant straight partnership between Elijah Adebayo and, and Harry, Harry Cornick and also Carlton Morris as well. And I do think maybe... We're a little bit blinded to their quality because they are little old Luton who play at Kenilworth Road and, you know, it's a horrible place to go and they don't play the most attractive football. Whereas actually, 
15 months worth of, of good results at the top end of the championship is probably enough now to start saying, actually, this is a side who, who everybody needs to t- start taking seriously. I quite like ignoring Luton. I mean, the most ignored side, as we know from... <laughs> Is Gillingham? I know they're not. I don't know. We haven't got to League Two yet. But uh, um, let, let's talk about Burnley, uh, Ben. Styler says I'd love a quick catch up on Burnley. Sold fourteen players, bought in fifteen with a brand new, unproven manager, top of the championship, playing football that has seventy percent possession. They probably had the ball more this season than in the entirety of last season. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's weird as well because they've only won six of the fourteen. Obviously, they are top of the league. Um, I do think kudos to Vincent Company, who obviously was a you know big name, high high profile um, get in terms of the the manager there. He's put a really good style on the team. Obviously, as you say, big contrast to what had gone before. Uh, quite brave, I think, to do that given given what had gone before. Uh, but it's definitely working. And also, they've kind of got this nice neat blend of some of the uh, players of kind of yesteryear, if you like. You know, Jack Cork still milling around, and some of these new faces which they've they've managed to strike this nice balance. And they, I mean, the destruction of um, Swansea last weekend, 4-0, to, to beat a, a Swansea team that looked like they were just, you know, hitting some rhythm or were in some good uh, form. To go and hit them for four, I think was quite a statement, really. Yeah, I think, I think Burnley fans um, can't really believe their eyes at the moment when they go and watch their team play. Um, I think they were, they were sold the idea that in order to compete um, at Premier League level, uh, they had to play a certain way because of the, the technical deficiencies they had. And that will be the interesting thing. If they do go up next season, if they do go up and they're in the Premier League, will they stick to their guns and continue playing this way? Um, we're feeling quite smug. I mean, it's too early, but we had our um, we do our 1-24 to predictions before the season starts and we had Burnley top and we had a lot of people messaging us saying, um, what are you talking about? They are way off it. So at the moment, it, it's going okay. And the style of football is great. It's worth pointing out as well that uh, Burnley have taken the lead in all 10 of their last 10 um, championship games. They've only won five and drawn five of those. So they do have a, a slight issue holding on to leads. Three of the equalisers they conceded were um, late in the game, one in the 87th minute, two went into injury time as well. So in a parallel universe, if they could have seen out games they should have won, Burnley could easily be nine, ten points clear here. And um, we'll be talking about a team who who maybe were the, who are the new Leeds or are the new um, uh, Norwich or, or whoever else because they they certainly have it in them. And I think because of the amount of, the influx of players that have come in in the summer, they're probably the one team as well who you can see continuing to improve as company gets his ideas across and as they get used to the, uh, the new style of play. George, can I take out my big pointy knitting needle of hubris <laughs> and stick it into your balloon of smugness oh no by pointing out that if i recall correctly in your season preview you and ali couldn't relegate reading quick enough they were going to be relegated by october and i oh what's this they're sixth in the table three points off the top what what's happened there i've got to be careful what i say here there's a as an Oxford fan myself, and, and with Reading considering Oxford as, a, as an arch rival, um, I, I often get accused of, of bias, and I have to keep reminding Reading fans that as a as a, an Oxford fan of a younger generation, I don't consider Reading as rivals at all. But I've still got to be careful what I say. I mean, the one thing I would say to this is that Reading have had an incredible start to the season, and I certainly wouldn't take my prediction back. I think it's it's testament to the job that Paul Ince is doing that he's taken a squad that looked so devoid of quality with massive off-field issues and taking them to where they are. The other caveat to this is that they are still sixth favourites for relegation right now. Um, so it's, it's maybe 
a little bit in the same way that my you know the, the Burnley prediction is too early to get excited about maybe this is too early for the coffin as well because um <laughs> You know, the, the underlying data, uh, the XG data that Reading fans are, are very quick to dismiss and understandably so, hasn't been particularly positive around them. Having watched them quite a few times over the last couple of weeks, you know, I was impressed with their performance against Norwich where they completely shut the game down and managed to draw a one-all. Um, you know, Ince has created a, a massive siege mentality and having, you know, jumped up Oxford fans like me on a podcast <laughs> before the season started, telling them they're going to get relegated, I think has only, has only helped that. So yeah, all credit to them, but... Um, I think even now, after the good start of the season, uh, Reading fans, uh, well, in my opinion, that the first aim should still be to ensure they keep up this form so they can't get sucked into a relegation battle towards the end of the season. Your face pinned on the dressing room wall of the <laughs> yeah. Majeski. Yeah. The, the podcast being played on a loop <laughs> on the dressing room stereo. <laughs> Amy says, Slavon Bilic only has one win in his last three matches. Is he on borrowed time? Um, ben, uh, how has Bilic done at Watford so far and what did you make of the kind of Rob Edwards sacking we spoke to Mike Parkin from the Rookery M podcast who was actually a, you know we were sort of laughing about it but he was felt incredibly deflated and sort of let down actually by the owners yeah well yeah undoubtedly disappointing I think especially if you're a Watford fan because all the sort of false promises of sticking by Edwards basically regardless of what had ha- what happens in uh, it just turned out to be a load of tosh, which probably you know a lot of people predicted. Um, I think it was disappointing because Edwards had, you know, I think it was ten games or eleven games he had, which is nothing. Uh, he had obviously come from a, a totally different environment in, in Forest Green in League Two. Did a really good job there. I, I just think at Watford, it was it's such a mishmash of a squad as it always is. Um, I don't think uh, necessarily he was hugely aware of some of the people that were coming in on the on the training ground and things still and that's not conducive to uh a good setup for anybody. Uh Billich can, can probably handle Sorry, that. sorry, sorry, how do you sorry, how do you mean who was turning up on the training ground? Just owners and people No, I think people were being signed still with, you know, without, you know, the head coach or manager perhaps necessarily desperately wanting them. Um I I, I do think Billich I do like Slav and Billich. I do think it's a quite a good appointment actually um for kind of for what he's working with it it would have felt a lot it would have made a lot more sense actually I think to get Billich in in the first place I think Edwards was such a key change from what had gone before like I said they they made false promises that they were going to you know stick by it and going to do it a new way and this this is us now and they just you know went back reverted to tight I think the squad is still very talented and like I said I, I would be amazed if they're not in the top six at the end of the season. But as you say, two defeats in the last three and they're never too far from crisis. But I do think Billich will get them up there, but it might not be particularly pretty, which is obviously what Edwards is trying to get towards. But I think they'll be up there. I think it was this time last season there had been one sacking in the championship. This season I make it mainly sackings, but a couple of guys leaving their jobs, Alex Neal, for example, is it nine have gone already? Is it... I think it's more. I mean, I saw a, well, I, I I've saw, gone, a tweet. I've got, sorry, Stoke Borough, Sunderland, West Brom, Huddersfield, Watford, Cardiff, Rotherham, Hull. That's nine, but there there may be more. Um... There was a there was a kind of a viral tweet saying that, um, that Mick Beale, who was appointed in June, was now the 10th longest serving manager in the championship <laughs> <by> last week. <laughs> 
So either way, it's it's over a third of the teams in the division have changed, sacked or changed their manager already. That can't be healthy, is it? Or are you surprised? I'm not too surprised. I, I just think that the timing of this season is is really interesting, and it's the same in the Premier League with with this World Cup because it's like, can we limp towards November, basically, or do we need to act sooner? You know, how, how grave is the danger here? I, I think some of the championship clubs, I don't know if the expectations are are fair from, from sort of the powers that be. You know, you take Cardiff, for example. So Steve Morrison is allowed or, or backed, whatever way you want to put it, to basically totally revamp the squad. Crazy amount of numbers, you know, almost sort of verging on Nottingham Forest, really, in terms of what they've done there, in terms of um, the turnover. And then he's like out of the door with, you know, I think about 10 games or so. Like it's, what are you expecting? Like they weren't doing great. No, I saw them a couple of times and they were poor. But they picked up a couple of good results as well. And it's like, well, where should you be? Equally, obviously the whole owner has these sort of huge visions, which I think we said at the start of the season, we're either going to go one of two ways. Um, and that's sort of spectacularly um, fallen flat. But I don't know, some some of those clubs, Middlesbrough, West Brom, you'd have expected a lot more um, from, from Steve Bruce and Chris Wilder. There. I must admit, I'm hugely surprised at, at both of those not working. But I do think there's an element of just expectations maybe not being on um, on the right sort of kilter, really, with, with the manager or, or what they've got in place. Are you surprised by that it didn't work out with Steve Bruce at West Brom? Yeah, I am. I thought this season they would be a lot better. What I don't buy into is that I know Bruce wanted a couple more players. I think Josh Onama being one, there's a couple more I can't think of, but I, I can't buy that for a second, to be honest. I thought the squad was more than capable uh, in what is not, you know, it's not a glittering league, as George said earlier. It's not a team that is running away with it. So I, th- I think West Brom had more than enough, ab- or have more than enough ability to, to be in the mix, um, sign two of the best players in the championship, uh, in John Swift and Jed Wallace, that I, I'm struggling to see why Bruce didn't get uh, enough out of those, to be honest, which I think is quite a damning indictment of, of him and where he goes now. But I'm surprised they weren't up there, yeah. There's a, um, there was a, a piece in The Athletic after, after Bruce left that contained the information that Steve Bruce had um, signed two players, one of which was, whom was Eric Peters, who was his next door neighbour, and another one was uh, Brandon Thomas Asante because he'd been recommended by his um, son-in-law Matt Smith, who plays with him at Salford. And if that is the level of recruitment, <laughs> even though you know Todd Thomas Asante has, has been a success so far, so you can't criticise that. But um, it does feel like that's taking old school management to a, a whole new level. I mean, it's pretty lucky. I mean, if, it's pretty lucky that it was Eric Peters and not just yeah, you know, my neighbours <laughs> like you know. He is at least a footballer. Like, you know, like, I don't think Kath next door would have done a job, to be honest. Uh, Adam, the biggest story from the championship, obviously, and the EFL, and probably the whole of football. Adam says, why are all the goals in the EFL the wrong size? And why are we only just finding out this season? Basel Gunas says an in-depth piece of investigative journalism on how the biggest story of the 2022-23 season is the mystery of goals being the wrong size. Two in the EFL, uh, one in the Women's Champions League. Who is behind it? What game will be next? Will... Will we have the giant goals once promised by Set Blatter? Yeah, so you had this at Hull Birmingham. You had it at Wigan Cardiff. Um, and in the Wigan Cardiff game, apparently the ref allowed play to continue. And Cardiff's third goal went in off the crossbar that was established to be two inches too high. What's, happen- what's happening, Ben? I was told yesterday that apparently Wigan 
in Cardiff in that game, both teams kind of agreed that, well, we, we both have the kind of problem for one half, so let's just get on with it. I think there was an element of it being very close to kickoff by the time they realised it was a bit like, we can't really, you know, we can't really do much about this now, which does feel a bit uh, shambolic. Um, and obviously, yeah, Cardiff, you know, made the most of it and, and scored. But I think, um, I don't quite get how, like, if you're a member of ground staff, like, that is all you have to concern yourself with. Like, surely well, that's no, Okay, just... come on. You've got mowing the pitch, putting the lines out, corner flags. But surely goals just... Don't goals just come in at... Like, who's building goals that are just a tiny bit too big? Which mischievous goal manufacturer is doing that? It's interesting you mentioned Blatter, though, because, you know, it's has only started since him and Platini were exonerated back in, in July. So Same maybe this point. is his new... He's going around Wigan and Hull, just just kind of, yeah, lengthening the goals to get his, uh, his wishes across. This was a problem in horse racing a few years ago. I remember that someone measured a course and say a, a two and a half mile race was actually a couple of hundred yards too long. And it it was just the case that no one had actually bothered to check. <laughs> so it could be something that simple, you know, no, no one's bothered to measure them. So they just assume they're all right. It's not quite the same, but my first ever century playing cricket, which is quite a monumental moment. Remember Jonathan, one of two. Uh, Remember Jonathan Wilson (laughs) burst into tears, you know, talking about his first century. I I retired on 101 because, you know, I'd let someone else have a go. You know, it's a good knock. I'm happy with that. And at T, the opposition scorer went, you only got 91, mate. And you're like, no. (laughs) 91 is a cocky time to retire, isn't it? I I think it it must have been Adam Hurry. If it wasn't, apologies. Someone who tweeted a picture of the the video of the guy sawing the goalpost saying, this goalpost is not living a charmed life, you know, whatever it is. Like it, it looked something quite macabre about soaring a goal. That was quite a quite a loose quite a loose definition of your first ever century, that isn't it then, I think. Yes. But I still raised the bat. <laughs> yeah. I still you know, I had all the things you needed for it to be a century. I had everyone I think cheering. It's been, it's been I had, apart, apart from a hundred <laughs> runs. <laughs> apart from a hundred runs. It's a very good point. A uh, quick one on you on Sunderland, Barry. How are you feeling? Carl says can you make the playoffs? Yeah, I don't see why not. I think if Luton made the playoffs last season, anyone can make the playoffs because they're operating on a tiny budget with, the, I think, the second smallest wage bill in the division after Blackpool they had. And I, I'd be honest, I'd just settle for a season of mid-table meh, but um, there's no, I can see no reason why not. Uh, I'd, I'd just like Sunderland to finish above Stoke, really, because... Alex Neal's a horrible little shit. <laughs> um, all right, that'll do for part one. Other, view- I'm sure there are other views on Alex Neal are probably available <laughs> somewhere. That'll do for part one. Part two, we'll do League One and Two. I'm Grace Dent. And I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh, the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado.
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Our Football Weekly is live uh, on the 17th of November. We're not doing a tour. We're just doing one show um, for time constraints in the World Cup and all that. Our Christmas special uh, at Earth in Hackney will probably end up in a pub around the corner. Me, Barry, Lars Sivertson, Ellis James. It will just be fun to see how nervous Ellis is before a World Cup, Wales in a World Cup. Uh, won't it? Uh, tickets from theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. Uh, the event's going to be live streamed as well, um, sent around the entire world. So you can watch it wherever you are. Um, and it is great when... People send us photos in, I don't know, Wyoming or Nova Scotia or Thailand or whatever, just watching our live shows at various times of the day. And if you can't watch it live, you can watch it on Catch Up uh, for the following week. Um, that is theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. Ben, into, before we start on like who's doing well in League One and Two, are all the clubs, you know, not all clubs are brilliantly run, but any are any clubs in trouble? Because, you know, COVID wasn't long ago. A lot of these clubs are on an absolute shoestring. Are there any clubs that we should be worried about? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I do feel like uh, League Two is maybe where that, that maybe people should be more worried about, about clubs. But in League One, I feel like it seems in pretty rude health. I think some very well-run clubs actually, I mean, for example, Burton uh, are struggling, but... Um, you know, they're very well run with Ben Robinson. There have been for a long time. I suppose Morecambe actually uh, would be a, a cause for concern. Um, not the biggest club either. Uh, and they're also bottom of the league. So, yeah, they've not had a great start. So I suppose that they're, they're maybe one cause for concern. But I think gen, gen, generally in League One, um, it's in pretty good rude health. Uh, so, look, um, uh, to mark your card, Plymouth at the top of League One. Uh, Ipswich in the other promotion p- position with Sheffield Wednesday. Peterborough... <laughs> Portsmouth and Barnsley in the playoff places. Uh, Bolton just behind them with Shrewsbury doing sort of surprisingly well. Derby County uh, and then down to sort of Charlton in 10th. Uh, ben, is, is League One panning out as you kind of expected? Yes, I probably didn't expect quite so much from Plymouth uh, again, to be fair. They obviously had a really good season last year. Uh, top of the league, as you say, at the moment and absolutely flying as well. They're not just sort of bit different to the championship where you know you can be top and it's very tight and, and quite cagey but Plymouth are top by sort of some distance really um Ipswich are obviously up there have been very impressive under Kieran McKenna I think Ipswich and Plymouth and Sheffield Wednesday that top three are probably superior to some of those other teams or certainly at the moment the early evidence is, is pretty impressive for those guys I, I do think Plymouth is interesting because it felt like they were building something really special under Ryan Lowe Obviously, he then goes to Preston. His number two, Stephen Schumacher, sticks around uh, to take the, the, the permanent job, the manager's job. Uh, very highly thought of. Always wanted to become a manager, but obviously, until it happens, you don't really know what it's going to look like. But he's done a brilliant job to the point where he's now being linked with the West Brom vacancy. You know, that, that would be hard to... I don't, I don't know the sort of truth behind that link or that report, but I think, um, I think he's done a great job. A Plymouth team that... 
on paper is I don't want to be disrespectful. It's it's a good team, but you don't look at it and you don't think, wow, this is sort of stacked full of you know the, sort of the league's best players. But I think they're onto something pretty special. They sort of they know what they've got. And again, very well run. So I suppose that helps. It is a worry for Plymouth fans that Schumacher has been linked with the West Brom job, but I think he's been linked with a bigger job before and was quite adamant that he was perfectly happy at Plymouth and wanted to see it through. So I don't know if he'd take it if it was offered to him. On what Ben said at the end there about them being well run, I mean, I think Simon Hallett, the owner of Plymouth Argyle, deserves massive credit because Plymouth Argyle are, are basically the blueprint for how, in my opinion, any club in League One or of that similar size should be run. Um, They do not spend beyond their means. They are very, very clever with recruitment. They had a clear succession plan that when Ryan Lowe left, they were able to to ensure that there was some continuity with his assistant getting the job. And then in this market, you know, I think the the one thing that people are maybe um, not ignoring, but don't realise is how difficult, you know, Brexit has basically made recruitment in League One and League Two. You might think that that's the area where that wouldn't affect them, but because... Premier League clubs and Championship clubs are struggling to recruit from Europe as much as they used to. It means that the dead wood that used to trickle down to, to League One and League Two doesn't really exist anymore. And when you've got Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday who can spend so much more than other League One clubs because their revenue is so much higher, it basically they can cherry pick the best talent and then the rest are left scrambling in what is a very, very small pool. Plymouth Argyle played the loan market brilliantly. Ben mentioned that they don't have the, the most impressive squad, but there are a couple of players where you know, Barley Mumba, who uh, Barry will know all about as a Sunderland kid, uh, now on loan from, from Norwich. Um, he won the EFL Young Player of the, of the Month last month, a right-footed, uh, inverted left wing back who is just absolutely electric uh, on that left-hand side. Uh, Finn Azaz, who won League Two Young Player of the Season last season when he was on loan at Newport from Aston Villa. He's come in there as well. Morgan Whitaker, another one. You know, they've played the loan market so smartly. Uh, and then the, the key one, which was, uh, I think, gives Plymouth Argyle fans the most um, joy is uh, Sam Cosgrave, who has had a couple of really poor loan spells from Birmingham to other clubs. So when Plymouth Argyle signed him, they were met with a lot of reviews saying that um, how poor he was and how they made a massive dud signing. But I'm pretty sure he's the only person with a better goals to minute ratio in, in the country than Erling Haaland. So um, yeah, the people at Plymouth Argyle know what they're doing and they are showing that you don't need to overspend in order to compete with with those at the very top if you're if you're well running and you're you're recruiting in the right areas uh, barry just for the tape um can you confirm <laughs> or deny do you know all about whoever that fellow was i tried to maintain a deadpan expression i didn't see a flicker of, must, of recognition at all on your face must confess i have never heard of the kid i wish him all the very best <laughs> uh, now, Ben, I watched um, I watched Ipswich uh, fluke past Cambridge at Portman Road three nil, um, uh, where I'm not sure we had, not sure we went into their half, but that, that's not important. Um, and then the Saturday games I find more difficult to watch in Australia. What I do is I wake up and I go onto the Cambridge United Twitter page and I look away and I scroll back loads, <laughs> and then I and then I do like my own minute by minute, and uh, I watched us. Uh, lose at home to Sheffield Wednesday at the weekend. It's very upsetting because actually, because obviously when they write the tweet, they put the score at the bottom, but I'd like them to put the score at the top because I'm going the other way. And when you score, there's a big gif and it's really exciting. When they score, it just goes nil one. Uh, but out, out of Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday, who do you think has the better shot? Oh, that's a good question. I I would probably be tempted to say Ipswich. Uh, I think I've said before, I... I don't know about something. Something about Sheffield Wednesday just makes me think. I don't know. I think. I think it's Darren Moore. I, I don't. I think Kieran McKenna uh, 
is probably a better coach, better manager, or will be um, proven. I think um, Ipswich probably have a better squad as well. Sheffield Wednesday have some brilliant players, don't get me wrong. But Ipswich are kind of the League One all-stars. And I, th- I just think that will show over time. I think it, it, it's kind of hard to get so excited probably about Ipswich if it wasn't for Kieran McKenna. The fact they've got this kind of bright young thing. Obviously, the way he's come out of Man United. Um the fact he's sort of still very baby-faced and all the rest of it. But really, in terms of the squad, they're exactly where you'd expect them to be, I think, because of the investment um, and just the, the, the nature, the makeup of the, of the profile of player they've got compared to um, some of the rest of the teams in that, in that league. What do you make of Derby, George? They, I think a lot of people wanted Liam Rossinia because he's a really nice guy and looks like a very promising coach. They went for Paul Warren which meant there was an opening at Rotherham. Fortunately, Cambridge's manager, Mark Bonner, said, I don't want to go to Rotherham, which meant I think Mark Cooper went from Exeter. Is that right? I'm not sure who Exeter Matt, got Matt in. Taylor. Matt Taylor. Who did I say? Mark Cooper. Mm. I was thinking of mm. old Exeter strikers. He'd have, he'd have, he'd have jumped to that job. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies to Matt Taylor. Yeah. Um, and it's a g- generic name of lower league managers. Which one? Uh, <laughs> um, so so uh, what, did you, what have you made of the Derby situation? Look, I mean... Firstly, I think Paul Warden um, is a, a brilliant manager and someone who I would absolutely love to go for a pint with um, because he seems like a, a, a great guy. Um, he he did the Moment of Truth podcast um, over the, uh, the towards the back end of last season and he came across brilliantly. He was very honest about how he sees himself as very much a man manager and is kind of the the person who manages the culture of the club, whereas his assistants, maybe the tacticians, his assistant Richie Barker and the coaching staff have, have gone with him as well. So. And the one thing I would say about Warren is that um, Rotherham uh, probably had more patience in him than a lot of other clubs would have done. I think Paul Warren at other clubs would have been sacked um, a couple of times. I mean, he, he was relegated three times and, and it's not that often that a, a manager gets to try and, you know, take on the next season after relegation. And, and Warren was afforded that opportunity three times and did, and each time rightly so, because he took them back up again. The one thing that was slightly confusing to me is that... Um, Liam Rossini came in in the summer as interim manager and implemented a really, really patient passing style of football where they, I think they were second for passes completed behind Ipswich. They were second for possession. They were keeping the ball at the back. Um, and then suddenly they go and bring in a manager in Paul Ward who's all about intensity, no interest in possession at all. It's all about getting the ball forward and being direct. So in, in that sense... Um, it's a bit confusing. One's had a fairly decent start, although they had a ridiculous um, game. I mean, the, the away fans at Accrington in the Derby end on Saturday saw Sean McConville, the Accrington player, miss a penalty in the 37th minute and then again in the thirty in the 38th minute and then Derby scored in the 39th minute. So um, that was uh, an incredible three minutes for them. Um, but, you know, Warren's first home game in the league was a 2-1 defeat by Port Vale, um, which was a little bit humbling. Uh, two wins either side of that. Um, I mean, I, I have no doubt that, well, in my mind, Paul Warren probably will take Derby to the championship, whether it's this season, next season, uh, or whenever, because that is what he does. Um, but in terms of the timing, I think it's easy to feel pretty sorry for, for Rossini, um, who did a, a pretty good job in his first managerial job in quite a short space of time and, and had shown loyalty to, towards them before that. Brad says, uh, does Ben... Have any thoughts on the state of Charlton? Got rid of Q impression. Roland de Chatelet, who was replaced by an owner who said two promotions was achievable with his investment, being through three managers, still stuck in League One, struggling to break even. Yeah, well, great result for them 
obviously last night was first thing to say against Portsmouth, who I'm quite sweet on Portsmouth. Not on a great run, Pompey, at the moment, but I think they'll be up there. But Charlton, um, it was quite a bold, quite a brave appointment probably going for Ben Garner uh, from Swindon. I think it's weird, but Thomas Sangard had a, you know, he he's quite a convincing guy, or he, you know, he talks quite a good game. But as you say, as the as the listener says, um, they've not made really any huge strides, to be honest, over quite a long period of time now. The squad is okay, I think. Uh, there's, but then again, when if you sort of compare it to an Ipswich or Sheffield Wednesday, I, I think it's lagging behind those guys. I think Charlton will be okay. I think they'll be. They'll be in the mix. Obviously, they've had a couple of poor years. I, I just don't know if I, I don't know if I see them getting success this season. To be frank, so I suppose in that in that sense, it would be another season of disappointment, another season in League One. But I'm happy to be proven wrong. Uh, quick word on Oxford, George. Your side not doing too well. No, it's been a, a pretty poor start to the season. Um, a four-two win on on Saturday at Exeter was much needed um, for Carl Robinson. I mean, I think the frustration with Oxford fans is that Oxford lost a playoff semi-final to Blackpool um, or 18 months ago or over 18 months ago now. And after the game, Carl Robinson said very clearly what the fans wanted to hear was that they needed more robust players. And um, we've had <laughs> quite a few transfer windows since then and it hasn't happened. No fullbacks were really signed in the in the summer, apart from Jovan Anderson from Lazio on on deadline day, who's who's yet to really make an appearance so far. So the recruitment hasn't been great, um, but this isn't the first time that Oxford have uh, struggled to start the season under Carl Robinson and then come back to to challenge towards the top end. And it's exciting times as well because um, there's a there are new owners who are pretty wealthy, um, Eric Toher and, and Anand Bakri, um, and. There are plans to build a new stadium, uh, which would be much needed given that Firoz Kassam still owns the the, the Kassam Stadium uh, and Oxford's lease is up in a couple of years' time as well. So not great on the pitch, but but definitely reasons to be positive off it. And, and hopefully um, under Robinson, that, that good result on Saturday can continue and um, ease any fears of being towards the bottom end of the table. All right, that'll do for part two. We'll do League Two in part three. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. The Football Supporters Association Awards nominations have been announced. Go to thefsa.org.uk and you get to a survey monkey page if you keep clicking buttons and you can vote for many things from the Guardian. Robin and the pod. Robin Cowan, commentator of the year. The Guardian newspaper of the year. David Squires, online media of the year. You can vote for Barney Ronnie or Susie Rack for writer of the year. You can vote for us for podcast of the year. Are you, are you up for it, George? Are you guys mm. up for it? We, we we were nominated right at the beginning when we had about 400 listeners uh, and it was it was huge for us. And we've been ignored ever since. Disgrace. Oh, so, so you're part of the Football Weekly family. So Thank if you, you like Not The Top 20, you can vote for Football Weekly. And of course, <laughs> vote for vote, vote for the warm-up with me and Baz and Charlie Baker because we won last year somehow. 
And we really have bleated on about it on the radio because we are very surprised. Um, so that is the FSA.org.uk. Look, and the FSA are great, so you should read their all of their website anyway and join. Um, Daniel says, Max's usual average EFL reference team of Stevenage sit top of League Two. Could Max in future please choose another side in which to direct his average and sometimes forgettable reference? It's a very good point. Our friend Will Unwin says, can Steve Evans manage in the Premier League? Um, Stevenage doing tremendously well, Ben. Yeah, we do need to talk about Steve Evans in Stevenage, don't we? It's um, it's quite the transformation. Do you think it's because? Do you think he's called Steve and it's Stevenage and it's just a sort of it's just this osmosis? Yeah, one big happy place, maybe. Um, yeah, he he's he's transformed the the team, um, or certainly their fortunes when he took over their twenty second. I think they were going down when he took over in March. I think they were probably going to get relegated. And then they won four of their final seven. Actually stayed up with quite substantial ease, really. He knew what he wanted in the summer. Got uh, many of those sort of pieces in the, in the puzzle. Um, it's still, I suppose, Steve Evans' style. Uh, but I don't think that's anything to be sniffed at when you're getting the kind of results that, that he is. I mean, they're top of the league. I mean, to be top of the league at this point of the season when you were going down at the back end of last season is just some turnaround. Uh, and you wouldn't bet against him, you know, staying there. But there's nothing to suggest for my eyes that they won't, they won't be up there uh, come April, May. So I think um, it's some going really. I mean, he's, he's 60 this month. He's, he says that he's mellowed. He feels he's mellowed. He feels he's a different character on the touchline which I suppose I mean the bar the bar was high like, <laughs> like you can mellow from there and still be quite angry can't you yeah I mean I, I spent some time with him and it was quite amazing to see Steve Evans just you know in the garden in the kitchen just doing that run of the meal things rather than sort of bleating on the touchline were you just staying the night with him <laughs> how much time did you spend with Steve Evans a couple of hours okay right I, I just imagine him storming around the kitchen, roaring at various appliances, <laughs> getting inc- incredibly angry at the toaster or something because it's taking too long. I did say to him it felt very apt that directly behind him there was a Gordon Ramsay cookbook. And I just thought, you know, the stars have aligned here in terms of their effing and jeffing. But um, no, I think, uh, I mean, Stephen is playing Northampton on Saturday. That'll be a big test. Northampton are going really well again, their third. Uh, but yeah, sort of credit to to Steve Evans and, Steve, and and to Phil Wallace, the owner. To be fair, I think um, again we're talking about well-run clubs, and he he's certainly uh, a really good owner in in the league, let alone League Two. What was it, Northampton, who got absolutely stiffed on the last day of last season by Bristol Rovers? Yeah, I I was worried that they might not come back from that. <laughs> Just it was such a devastating, crushing thing to happen, but they seem to be doing all right. Yeah, they've done well. They've bounced back, as you say, Barry. I mean, obviously, yeah, they because Bristol Rovers won 7-0 on the final day, uh, Northampton lost out on goals scored, I believe, uh, which is sort of bonkers to still think about now. Uh, and even weirder when Bristol Rovers were only 2-0 up at half-time and there was lots of theories that uh, perhaps there was something more at play, some dark arts. But um, yeah, Northampton have, have bounced back really well and Again, John Brady, quite a sort of steady hand there. So, yeah, fair play. God, I mean, it's just the worst ever transistor radio moment, isn't it? Northampton fans, as every Bristol Rovers goal goes in. Leighton Orient, a second, uh, George. Uh, is, is that where you'd expect them to be? Uh, possibly. I mean, I think Richie Wellens has done a very good job. I do worry that they started the season 
almost too well. Uh, I always think when um, clubs maybe didn't have aspirations to, well, didn't expect to be first or second in the league, start a season as well as Leighton Orient did, it kind of changes the expectations around the season and then the manager can suddenly come under criticism when they end up finishing around about where they're expected to before the season started. Um, having said that, you know, this is a big job for Wellens. Uh, he hadn't um, since, you know, taking Swindon up out of League Two. He had struggled at, at Salford and at Doncaster. Um, so it feels like this is a job where he needed to make it work. And, and so far he's doing so. You know, they're a good team to watch, scoring plenty of goals. Um, yes, they they aren't going through the best spell at the moment, but but there seems no reason why they won't be up there challenging around the top end. Very different style, it's, it's fair to say, than, than Steve Evans' Stevenage, who uh, are very direct. Big fan of the extending the he hit it too well to an entire team starting mm-hmm. too well and winning <laughs> games when they absolutely shouldn't be winning Victim games. of his own um, success. Exactly. How How's Mark Hughes doing at, at Bradford? I saw him control a clearance the other day, <laughs> which is as far as, you know, and, he, and he's still got a lovely touch. It's a shame he didn't volley it. wonderful footballer he was. Uh, yeah, and he should have, I don't know if he did then, just volley it back <laughs> into the net from 50 yards, um, which he should have done. But, but how's he getting on, George? Yeah, he's doing well. I mean, it's been a kind of a, a steady start rather than anything spectacular um, for, for Bradford. You know, they are on 24 points in fifth place through 13 games. I, I think the key thing for Bradford fans and for you know, for, for anyone watching on was, you know, would Mark Hughes's heart be in it? You know, when you have gone through what Mark Hughes has gone through as a, as a player and a manager, you know, when you've managed at the top level, when you've managed your country, uh, when you've played for Manchester United and, 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 you know, Barcelona and the rest of it, are you really going to be bothered in the twilight of your managerial career to go to, go in at Bradford and, and give it your all? But everything suggests that he absolutely is. Um, they've been good. The recruitment was good in the, in the summer. He's got um, Andy Cook, a you know a goal scorer of I guess in, in some ways similar ilk, even if not the same quality to Hughes, scoring plenty of goals. He's been he's been deadly in front of goal this season. So um, yeah, I mean all, all signs are, are definitely pointing that Bradford, after a a really difficult few years, are, are back on an upward curve with with Hughes at the helm. And, and I guess it's not particularly surprising that, that he is. So I think he's often lumped in with some of the managerial dinosaurs um, from from that era even though I think he's much more innovative and, and has done um, better jobs at certain places than, than others. I see Salford City are seventh, uh, eight points off the, the pace setter, Stevenage. Do they still have the biggest budget in League Two by a distance? Is that Well, Stockport uh, were promoted out of the National League last season and I think have a bigger budget than, than Salford. Um, again, because of the lack of finance, financial constraints in the National League. Um, it's pretty regular now that the team who gets promoted out of the National League or one of them will often have the biggest budget in League Two. And I think if Wrexham manage it this season, they'll probably continue that trend. Um, but but for Salford, it feels like they've kind of got it right now after um, you know flip-flopping quite a lot, going back and forth. Um, Neil Wood's come in, who is a, who is a youth team coach at Manchester United. Uh, I think it's quite surprising it's taken them this long to make a Manchester United hire for the, um, for the first team. The recruitment was good. Um, Elliot Watt is a player that I'm, I'm a huge fan of who was at Bradford before, a very, very classy ball-playing midfielder. And they're another team. They play really attractive football. Um, I think the only criticism is that maybe it's a bit too stale, a bit too much possession for possession's sake. Um, but they get the ball down and play. And um, and yeah, I think they're another one where, even though they're not in the position now where it looks like they've improved, um, it feels to me like they're, they're finally getting it right in the EFL. Uh, we actually got a little bit of criticism, me and Barry, when we interviewed Gary Neville, for not pushing him hard enough on the way Salford is run, sort of, and the, and what he says about regulation of football clubs and the fact that perhaps they put in a lot of money if they were to just bugger off that that Salford would be, you know, in real trouble. 
how is how is their ownership generally viewed by sort of the rest of the the, the AFL? In my opinion, the hypocrisy is true when it comes to his opinion on sacking managers and the way that he's maybe treated his managers at Salford. Although he's he's admitted now that he's he's had he's got some regrets. I think it's very naive to think that a good EFL owner isn't one who is going to pump money into the club. Um, yes, that does, of course, mean that if you are to walk away one day, um, it might put the club in into some financial issues. Um, but similarly, these clubs just categorically do not make enough money from matchday revenue alone in order to um, provide the, the necessary funding needed to, to, to maintain a promotion challenge. So I think the work that Gary Neville does around... Um, you know, especially recently, in light of the, the rumours that the the fan-led review led by Tracy Crouch might be binned by the by the new government, um, I think him going on or live on you know on BBC and, and talking about that it does massive um, favours for the EFL, uh, bringing it to the wider public and, and hopefully keeping um, the government to account in terms of not tearing up a proposal made by, weirdly enough, a Tory MP. Um, so. Yeah, I've only got praise for his work there and I don't have any issues with the way that he runs Salford personally, although I can understand that maybe some find it a bit galling to see the way that they do spend. Uh, Here to watch says, could you just say the word Gillingham so they've been mentioned on the pod outside of being the club no one cares about? (laughs) Barry. Um, Gillingham. They have been mentioned on the pod before, before your time, Max, when uh, James Richardson famously referred to them as Gillingham. (laughs) (laughs) which I suspect was even more of an insult than not being mentioned at all could I ask either of our uh, experts who know more about far more about this than me I noticed that Crawley Town Crypto Crawley's uh, plans to get into the Champions League aren't going quite as well as they might have hoped Um, they're second from bottom with nine points after 13 games what's any developments there? What What's the story? Well, yeah, and they, and they sacked Kevin Betsy uh, as well and, and obviously his assistant, Dan McKeeke, um, who at the time seemed quite exciting appointments. Uh, and obviously, as you say, Barry, they had this grand vision, still have grand plans. But as you say, it's gone pretty pear-shaped. I think I'd, I don't want to sort of write them off too soon. I mean, they are, obviously, they are in the relegation zone, but it does feel like maybe they've, just totally misjudged actually what they're working with. I can't, it, it's difficult to escape that sense that they, they've just got it really wrong actually and maybe it needs to be a bit more, what's the word, orthodox in terms of the ownership and the sort of structure there. I mean, we're sort of talking about some of these clubs towards the top end of the, the division which kind of got their head screwed on and just, just I don't know, a bit more sensible I suppose whereas Crawley it just feels it has been quite erratic. It's obviously very bold and different and bottom line is it's just not worked and I, I'm struggling now to see it working anytime soon I think I think the fact that because I mean Betsy was quite a I don't want to say a coup but it, it felt quite a good get it felt quite a smart appointment if that's not worked I struggle to see where they where they go from here to be honest I, I do think even though I agree and I was actually very excited about Crawley preseason the squad um, and Betsy and Makiki were, were good appointments having watched them a fair bit I mean, I, they were so poor. I mean, they were way worse than the squad was. And I think Betsy moving on was a, was a pretty obvious decision to make. Um, since they appointed Betsy, they they appointed Chris Galley, uh, who was formerly at Statsbomb, 
to be their new um, director of football or, or CEO or, or be just basically running the football side of the club. And he will be in charge of, of making the new appointment, which I think will be a very positive thing because um, there's no way. I mean, the, the squad is good and I'll maintain that. They had some really bad injury issues early on in the season as well. So I, I still personally think despite all the gimmicks, you know, we had Preston Johnson on the podcast a few weeks ago and he kind of held his hand up to an extent and said that, you know, some of the gimmicks such as writing songs about Carlisle United before a, a game with them, Cumbria, um, wasn't the greatest idea and wasn't the greatest sign of respect towards another EFL club. Um, I think they are putting... Also not very funny. No, know, not very like, funny. Not very funny at all. Yeah. I, um, I do think that they are maybe a little bit smarter than they let off and they are putting smart people in the right positions and even though this season might be a write-off I've got a feeling those who are writing off wag me um, as, as a basket case m- might still be proven wrong then he's not putting NFTs on the bench at this stage you know not yet no, I wouldn't no. put, I mean they are putting they, they are putting YouTubers on the bench and they're basically NFTs aren't they so are they are they really I mean some YouTubers are quite good at football but there's quite a jump for an between. FA Cup game they were they were scouting at that game the other day I mean I don't, I don't even know about this stuff wow okay but, um, Jack says uh, I would love to hear the insight on the EFL considering ending the 3pm Saturday blackout making every game available for broadcast from 2024-25 as a foreign Pompey fan I'd be delighted to see more games broadcast but uh, it could be a big big problem for clubs match attendances that's interesting because I can watch every game on iFollow from Australia the midweek games are available for fans in the UK but Saturday 3 o'clock are not um, Ben what do you think? Yeah I think the EFL there's a appetite to kind of just open things up a lot more than than things are at the moment uh i think they they want to kind of present this sort of blank canvas to uh rights holders or broadcasters to kind of get on board and say look what what do you want to do with this this product i suppose in in really crude terms uh i do think the suggestion that that google netflix and some of these other big hitters are potentially interested is, is maybe a bit of a stretch too far i'm not sure how how genuine that is, as exciting as, as it sounds. Um, I think the prospect of it being divvied up uh, and you know, a world where you perhaps have, for example, Sky taking uh, this part of the pie and then somebody else takes this and maybe a free-to-air showing or, or something, I think is is encouraging. I think it would be a positive step. Ultimately, I think there's still so many games, matches, stories that just fall by the wayside in the grand scheme of things in the Premier League. So I think if I think from the EFL side there's an appetite to reach more people uh in sort of basic terms and just kind of get seen more. I think the championship and the playoffs are massively popular, but perhaps beyond that it does kind of get a little bit lost perhaps. So the three PM blackout I think would be a I think would be a positive step towards that. The streaming seems to be seems to be quite popular with, with clubs that seems to be quite a, a big thing so and it's little things at the moment where clubs like highlights you ca- they can't put them out until like, I think it's 1am in the morning and things like that whereas you know trying to get rid eradicate sort of archaic kind of type rules like that would it would be a positive step I think with the streaming itself it's how that money is distributed because if you think about what it's like for a club you know using Accrington as, as an example because Andy Holt is very vocal about this on, on social media when Derby, when Ipswich, when Sheffield Wednesday come to town, the revenue that generates for Accrington is, is massive. And if suddenly, you know, an Ipswich fan can sit at home in Ipswich and at five o'clock be sat on his sofa after the game rather than having to, to come back from Accrington, they, they're probably going to do that. 
and the loss of revenue that will cause for a club like Accrington could be transformative in terms of the actual product itself. Um, part of the reason... So, sorry, sorry, George. Sorry, George. So what, what you would say is, or what Accrington would say is, they need to get some of that money. Absolutely, right? or, yeah. All of that course. money, or all well, no, of that I mean, money, or it's just it's just it's money. just the loss of revenue. It's just it's just making sure yeah, there course. isn't a loss of revenue for them in terms of what's going to happen in, there. And then for the product itself, I think this will inevitably cause smaller attendances. You know, I live an hour and forty five minute drive from Oxford. When I when I go to a game on a Saturday, it's basically four hours in the car, and I can guarantee sadly that if I woke up on a February morning and it was freezing outside and I looked outside and I thought you know what I can watch this from the sofa it's going to be hard to say no and I'm not the only one who will do that so therefore suddenly if you're cutting the the, the attendances are already fairly empty stadiums it's just going to make the product worse it's just going to make the, the games worse it's going to make the atmospheres worse I think we've got to be really careful here I mean I, I would be massively against getting rid of the the Premier League three o'clock blackout because I think really then you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face. But yeah, I, I just think this is a little bit of greed that could end up, um, you know, I understand there will be some people who want it for personal reasons, but in terms of the, the well-being of the EFL itself, uh, I think we've got to be very careful. Uh, Phil says, how has it come to pass that Sky have allocated one game on the day of the World Cup final, uh, which I think is a three o'clock kickoff UK time, uh, Millwall away at Luton? How are fans supposed to get back from a 12.30 kickoff to watch the World Cup final? Wasn't there supposed to be a clear fixture list for that day? So, so Ben, is it right? League One and League Two carry on through this whole thing. The championship stops completely, does it? Yeah, championship will crank up. Uh, what is it? Sort of, I, think there's a, I think there's a couple of rounds of games in the event of what would right, it be? Okay. Sort of in the is it semis or quarters of the World Cup. It's very, it's very late in the competition. So I think you'd be hard-pressed to find potentially a championship player involved in that. But it could, it could feasibly happen. For example, if Wales went all the way, I think some of those players would right. be therefore missing okay. in the football league. It does seem harsh, you know. England in the World Cup final, you know. That's a whoever's commentator, whoever's like Sky going, Sky going. Welcome to Super Sunday as as the Lions travel to Kenilworth Road, <laughs> and we'll do two hours of post match, even though England are playing Argentina in the World Cup final at three o'clock. David Proton <laughs> is already planning. How can I get out of this? <laughs> I want to watch the World Cup final. Uh, finally, John Granville's long throw says, "Who will win? I'm a celebrity. Adebayo Akinfenwa or Adebayo Akinfenwa? Um, uh, never was there an absolute cert who was going to go into the jungle after leaving football, and I don't think anyone else. Even though Boy George is apparently in it, but I I foresee Boy George and Akinfenwa striking up a marvelous friendship, and the two of them coming numbers one and two. Uh, I, uh, do you want to know who else is in it? Yes. Tom Daly, uh, Natalie Cassidy, is that? Um, Sonia from EastEnders, I think. Sonia from EastEnders, Danny Dyer as well. So two EastEnders in there. Chris Moyles and Mike Tyndall, amongst others who I... Danny Dyer and Akin yeah. Fenwell. <laughs> that is proper naughty. Round the it? fire pit. <laughs> isn't it? Um, anyway, uh, that'll do for today's pods. Um, thank you so much, George. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ben. Cheers, Max. Uh, thank you, Barry. Cheers, Max. Uh, now there's another brilliant podcast from The Guardian, Comfort Eating, with Grace Dent, returning today for a fourth series. Uh, join Grace and celebrity guests, including Graham Norton, Mallory Blackman, and Dorno Porter for a fourth season of the show as she throws the cupboard doors open and chats life through food. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. 
This is The Guardian.